we're calling Believe. And each week we're asking you to read the chapter in the book that most of you have and sort of be prepared for the message and also be prepared for some of the Bible classes. Most of our Bible classes are also involved in our series. And the series really has three, three moves, if you will. And the first is we're, we're asking questions about how we learn to think like Jesus. And then we're asking, go ahead and put the slide up, guys. And then we ask the question, how do we act like Jesus? And then how do we become like Jesus? And so far in this series, we're toward the end of that first section where we're thinking about how do we think like Jesus? And as we strive to think like Jesus, one of the things we will become more is more compassionate. And in your reading this week, you saw that compassion is all over that chapter. For instance, we saw that we have this God who's incredibly compassionate. And then we saw how that God calls Israel to be compassionate to to her neighbors. And how Jesus, in fact, embodies compassion. And, And we as the church are to be compassionate in our community. And each week in this series, we're given a key idea. And our key idea this week is expressed like this. I believe God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. And the key verse comes from the Psalms. It's Psalm 83, verses 3 through 4. Defend the weak and fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's who we are. As a people, we're concerned about the most vulnerable. As a people, we're concerned about those who struggle in this world, just as God has shown great compassion to us, we too are to be compassionate to those with whom we come in contact. And yet, that's easier said than done, especially as we find ourselves so very busy, as we find ourselves so full, really, of activity. If I were to ask you to identify the most familiar and well-known story of Jesus in the Bible, there would be two stories that would really come to the top of the list very quickly. The first is a story we alluded to last Sunday morning. It's found in Luke chapter 15. It's this story of the lost son, the prodigal son. But the second most familiar story, right up at the top, is this passage we're going to read today comes out of Luke chapter 10, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, most often when we're reading this story, we skip over the introductory material, so I appreciate Chris very much for giving us some insight into sort of what sets up this story. But if, if you're, most often we're familiar with the story, but we're not so familiar with what goes before, but let's notice how this story is introduced because it's, it's fascinating how it's set up. There's this lawyer. Now, the lawyer in the ancient world don't think Johnny Cochran, don't think F. Lee Bailey, but, but think more in terms of someone who's an expert in the law of God. That's what this lawyer was. There's this lawyer who comes to Jesus, and, and Luke lets us in on his motives at the very beginning. His motives aren't good. He comes to Jesus not because he has an open heart, not because he wants to learn from Jesus, but he comes to Jesus to test him. And so he asks a question, and it's a good question, albeit a somewhat controversial question. It's a question that we wrestle with even today. He comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I like that question because I want to know 
what I need to do so that I can experience not only this life to the full, but also the next life. And so Jesus answers this lawyer's question with a question. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer, he's prepared to answer. He says very quickly, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him and says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And we're reading the story And if this is the first time I've ever ever read this account, I might expect the story to end right here. He's answered correctly. He knows the answer to this question now. But yet this this lawyer, he, he wants to justify himself. He wants to get some clarity. He has a question about the extent of love, the parameters of love. And so he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And in response to this question, Jesus doesn't give him five theological responses or five theological reasons where to love a neighbor. He doesn't refer to the Old Testament and read three scriptures. What Jesus does so often in his ministry is he tells a story. And the story that Jesus tells is so colorful and powerful that most of us today remember and know this story very well. The story goes like this. There was a man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about a 17-mile journey. Understand it would be about a 15 or 1,600-foot drop. It's a rather narrow, winding, twisty road. The rumor was that that people would often be be beaten up as they walked along this road because there would be um, those who would lie in wait, robbers who would hide to pounce on unsuspecting travelers. And that's, in fact, what happens as Jesus tells the story. This man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he's accosted, he's attacked. His clothes are are ripped off. He's beaten to within an, an inch of his life. He is now lying beside the road. He is bleeding. Oftentimes when we're reading the stories of Jesus, I often say to you, we need to look for the surprise. Because you know, in any good story, there's a surprise. The story's not very good if you kind of know where it's going. It's not very interesting if you know what's going to happen. I've told you before that my wife is, man, she is so great at knowing where a movie is going to go. I mean, I'll be sitting there watching a movie with her, and she'll, she'll pat me on the leg and say, he's going to die. You know that, right? He's going to die. Well, I didn't know that until you just told me. Thank you very much. But you know, that's... A story is powerful when there's this element of surprise. Now, we've read these stories so much, we don't see the surprise. But there are two powerful surprises in this story. The first thing that's surprising about the story is who doesn't help the man in need. And so he's lying by the road, this this person, he's beaten up, and along comes a priest. Now, a priest is a religious leader. A priest is someone we would expect to help the man. And instead, the priest sees his condition, and what does he do? He makes a wide swath. He goes to the other side, makes a wide swath, and keeps on going. Someone else comes along, and this person's also religious. This is a Levite, priest's assistant. 
And he sees the man, and what does he do? Well, he does the same thing. We would expect these religious people to have a heart of God. We would expect these religious people to show compassion for this person who's beaten within an inch of his life, sitting there on the side of the road. What does he do? He does the same thing. He makes a wide swath. He goes around by the other side. See, it would kind of be like a well-known minister from a large church and maybe a police officer they see a man in trouble and instead of going and helping the man they they shrug their shoulders they turn and they walk the other way some years ago there's a famous experiment done at a particular seminary and a group of ministry students they gathered in this classroom and they were given this assignment they were to go to another part of the campus and they were to record a sermon that each had prepared on this particular parable story of the Good Samaritan now what they didn't know these seminary students is that they were really part of this experiment they were also told that they didn't have a lot of time so they needed to hurry over to that building on the other side of campus to record their sermon what they didn't know was that these researchers they found someone who would who would be sitting on the sidewalk beside where they would all travel who was sort of slumped over and appeared to be sick and in need and was sort of moan and groan and they were wondering if these seminary students would actually be a good Samaritan. The amazing thing is these seminary students, these preachers-to-be, as they were making their way onto the other side of the campus to preach a sermon on the good Samaritan, most of them walked right by this person by the road, by the sidewalk. In fact, one of the seminary students actually had to physically step over this person in order to get to the classroom to record his sermon on the Good Samaritan. You see, it's a lot easier to preach about being a Good Samaritan than it actually is to help other people. Now, if the first surprise in the story is who, who didn't help, the second surprise in the story is who, in fact, did help. And this would have been probably more shocking to those first hearers of this story than even the fact that the priest and the Levite didn't help. The greatest example of a non-neighbor in this lawyer's eyes, this person who's very familiar with the law, the greatest example of a non-neighbor he could think of would be a Samaritan. And yet it's the Samaritan who ends up being the neighbor. And of course, all the people in the story really are Jews, now, the priest and the Levite, they're Jews. This person who's beaten, he's probably a Jew. Robbers might have been Jew. People who are hearing about this story, they would have all been of Jewish descent. And there was great tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. They have this bitter history of racial and religious hatred. They want nothing to do with one another. In fact, we could probably assume that this person who was beaten up, laying beside the road, probably wouldn't expect help from these despicable Samaritans. Probably wouldn't want help from a Samaritan. But notice in the story how, how the good Samaritan helps. First thing he does, and I love this line. I guess I've read this story many times before, but, but this line this week in my study just jumped out at me. It says he, he came to where the man was. There's an interesting contrast, if you will, between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. The priest and the Levite, oh, they, they see him, but they make a wide swath. They go to the other side. But 
What does a Samaritan do? The Samaritan came to where he was. He chose to get close. You see, when you get close to a person, things start to look very different. We can very easily judge from a distance, but when you look into a person's eyes, when you get close and you know a a few details about the story, you might move beyond mere sympathy to compassion. And notice what this compassion looked like. Pay attention to the verbs in verses 33 through 35 of this reading. It says that he went to him and he bandages his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He puts him on his own donkey. He brings him to the inn. He takes care of him. He comes back the next day, and out of his own pocket, he gives the the innkeeper two denarii. One denarii would have been about what a common person would make a day. Two days' worth of wages he gives him. And then he says he'll come back the next day, and if there are any other expenses, well, he'll take care of those two. This man's amazing. Now, as we read this story, I guess I want to caution all of us in this room. I want us to be careful that we don't cast the priest and the Levite as bad or evil people. Now, they may have thought as they're walking along the way and they see this man who's beaten, they might have thought, well, this is a trap. This is a trick. As soon as we stop to help, there are going to be some other people come out of those rocks and hills and they're going to beat us. They're going to rob us. Or maybe they were thinking to themselves, well, he looks... He's dead. I think he's dead. And for this religious person, priest and Levite, for them to touch a corpse, it would have meant they would be ceremonially unclean. Maybe they thought that someone else was going to come by and help in just a moment. I don't know what was going on in their minds. We can only conjecture. And often like the priest and the Levite, we too can come up with all sorts of, in our minds, good reasons why why we can't help, we might say, well, you know, we're just too busy. We've got to take care of our own family. Or we might say, we wouldn't even know what to do. Or we might say, we don't have the money. Or we could say, well, I can't make any real difference. I mean, what would it mean if I just helped one person? Some might reason it's just, it's just too risky. Maybe it's too risky emotionally or it's too risky physically. We're part of a culture that's incredibly risk-averse. And some of us are just a little too afraid to help. Dr. Martin Luther King preached a sermon in 1954, not long after he came to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. I've had the privilege of being at that church and standing behind that pulpit. He hadn't been there long, and he preached this sermon that he called the Transformed Nonconformist. If you have time this week, you ought to Google it and just go back and read it. It's a marvelous sermon. It's based on Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in that sermon, Dr. King used a couple of, of well-known images. He, he said, Christians are not to be like a thermometer that just reflects the culture's values, but rather we're to be like a, a thermostat that sets the temperature of the culture. And then he said something very powerful in that sermon. He said, I've seen many white people opposed to racial segregation and discrimination, but they never took a stand against it for fear of standing alone. Sometimes we don't help 
we don't take a stand because we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid of standing alone. Interestingly, just a few months after Dr. King preached that sermon, a transformed nonconformist boarded a bus just a few blocks from the church on Cleveland Avenue. White section of the bus filled up and Miss Rosa Parks was asked to give up her seat in what was then known as the colored section. She very politely refused. You see, she took a moral stand by remaining seated and that one decision started a ripple effect that led to a court battle and a citywide boycott and eventually a Supreme Court decision that ruled segregation as unconstitutional. The moral courage of Miss Rosa Parks has made our country a better place. And so the religious expert, he asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? And really, when we think about who our neighbor is, it's quite simple. Your neighbor, and you can put this up on the screen, guys, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see and whose need you're in a position to meet. And while the religious person in this story wanted to limit, wanted to narrow, wanted to define compassion, Jesus wanted to expand it and spread it. Who is the neighbor to the man who was beaten up by the robbers, asked Jesus. And the religious expert, he couldn't bring himself to say, well, it was the Samaritan. But what he did say was, it is the man who had mercy on him. And Jesus looks at us, and he says, go and do likewise. Now, how can we be this kind of neighbor? And really, that's the, the question that I, I've been asking myself all week. How can we be a bold, courageous, loving, caring people? How can we move beyond mere sympathy to active compassion? And here's what I believe. We're helpless to be good Samaritans in our own strength. We're too weak, too timid, too afraid, too concerned about self-protection. We can't do it. So who do you relate to in this story most? I've showed my cards already. If we're honest, most of us in this room probably relate to the priest or the Levite. We're good people. We're traveling down the highway of life. We're busy, hurried, a little worried, often very risk-averse. And so we see these risky, messy, time-consuming, expensive opportunities to do good. And more often than not, we move on to the other side don't misunderstand we don't wish anybody harm we just we just are not so sure we we want to get involved and the more I thought this week the more I considered this story the more I realized there's another person in this story that I most relate to you see I'm the person in the ditch I'm the one who's lying there who is helpless and wounded I'm wounded by my own choices, by my sin, by my past, by my experience. I'm wounded by others. I'm wounded by what others have said, by what others have done. In many ways, I'm the one in the ditch. 
I'm the one who desperately needs to be rescued. And so are you. And along comes the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan in this story is Jesus. You see, Jesus was despised and rejected and looked down on like that Samaritan. When Jesus was born into this world, oh, there were plenty of whispers and rumors and innuendos. And people often didn't appreciate or understand Jesus' ministry. He was criticized for being with the wrong people. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he he doesn't walk around on the other side. Oh, no, Jesus comes near. Jesus comes to right where we are. And at great risk to himself, great cost, he comes to save us. He speaks tenderly to us. He lifts us up in his arms. And Jesus takes us to the place of healing. What does Jesus give us? He gives us far more than we deserve. And as Paul said, while we were still God's enemies, God saw us in the ditch, all beaten up and nearly dead, and he had compassion on us, and Jesus came to save us. And here's the thing. When you experience that kind of love, when you appreciate that kind of love, when you understand that kind of love, when you experience that kind of healing that can only come from Jesus, it's then that you are prepared to be the neighbor and extend this kind of compassion. I've told you before, in any good sermon, there's a now what. There's a what, there's a so what, and there's a now what. And so I guess for the next three or four minutes as we come to a conclusion, this message, I want to give you what I think is the now what of a sermon like this. The sermon was good until I heard a sermon by Andy Stanley yesterday, and I realized it could be better. And Andy Stanley said, you know, as we strive to help people, we can't help everyone, but friends, everyone in this room can help someone. Can we agree with that? We can't help everyone, we can help someone. And if we're going to help someone... It's going to mean three things, and then we'll close. It'll mean this. First, we need, if we're going to help someone, we need to go deep, not wide. You know, it's, it's very easy to go wide as we help people. Get a little money over there, a little money there. Here, here's $5. Here's $10. Let me say a little prayer for you. How about a prayer for you? I'll serve there or there. It's so easy to go wide. But what if we went deep? As we, as we help people, what if we go deep with people? You see, that's what the man in our story, in fact, did. He, he helped him at great expense to him, and then, then he, he took him to the inn, and then he said, hey, I'll come back tomorrow. He's going deep. We need to go deep with people as we strive to help. We need to go deep, not wide. We need to go long-term, not short-term. What if you decided, what if you felt called this year to pour your life into two or three people? Not for a day, not for a week. How about a year? How about if you said, I'm going to help some folks for a year? What if maybe God right now is prompting you and saying, you know, I need to help some marriages. I realize you probably don't have a perfect marriage. There is no perfect marriage, but there are a lot of struggling marriages. And so what if you said, my, my, I'm going I'm to come alongside another married couple, my wife and I, and we're going to walk with them for a year. Or what if some more mature men in this room said, I'm going to gather up a group of three or four other men, and I'm going to walk with those men for a year, and I'm going to pour into them. 
Go deep, not wide. Go long-term, not short-term. And finally, go time, not just money. Notice I didn't say not go money. And next week, we're going to ask you to give generously. But you see, it's so easy, isn't it, to give a little money? It's so easy to give a lot of money. But what if we gave to somebody else something that's far more valuable? The most valuable thing we can give is our time. And so for some of us, that might look like I'm going to give my time on July 1 for a habitat build that Tom Wallace is leading and that he's trying to get volunteers for. Or maybe for some of you it might, I'm going to give my time to leading a small group. Or maybe it might be mean I'm going to give my time to teaching a class. Or I'm going to give my time to mentoring or discipling. You can go on and on. While we can't help everyone, I can help. While I can't help everyone, I can help someone. And what if every one of us in this room said, I'm going to look for those places where I can be of help. I'm going to go, I'm going to go deep, not wide. I'm going to go long-term, not short-term. I'm going to go time, not just money. And if every one of us in this room said, I'm going to help somebody in that way, I don't know. We might change the world. But if we don't change the world, here's what I do know will happen. Your life will be changed. Your life will be changed.